Welcome to the Cryptid Horror Anthology, featuring the Georgia Kuma, written by Jeremy Jordan, the Voice in My Head, written by Alexis Ferecki, the Ormut, written by Jamie Jones, and Salisbury, written by Chris Jones. The Georgia Goo Man. Part 1. Goo Man? Sounds offensive, Larry. Well, it's not, okay? It's a name for this legendary creature because he is quite literally covered head to toe in goo, Larry replied. Now, can I continue? This is good shit. A real mood setter for the spooky season. Larry stood uncomfortably close to his longtime friend Bob. His eyes were wide with excitement. Since childhood, Larry loved Halloween and all things scary. Night after night, Larry would lay awake and devour horror movies through his equally horrific 90s television set, which rested in the living room of his modest Georgian childhood home. Bob happened to grow up right across from Larry. Their formative years were spent consuming a lot of horror together and doing other things that good friends did. The two of them had a strong bond for many years until college came and put that bond to the test. Bob decided on a school that was on the other side of the country. He dreamed of starting his own tech company one day. He would often stand in front of his large, upright bedroom mirror and pretend he was presenting a keynote speech. Larry, on the other hand, stayed back. He wasn't crazy about his hometown, but there was a certain comfort. He knew that he would one day have to fly on and see what the rest of the world had to offer, but at the moment he just felt stuck. It was as if the area he was settled in had some sort of magnetic draw. The date was October 1st, 2019. Bob was back home for an extended holiday break. He stood next to his childhood friend in silence. There was a few things that he wanted to say, but he thought it was best to let Larry just continue on with his Georgia Goo Man story. So as I was saying, Larry took a step back and widened his arms. He paused for a minute to make sure his friend was still paying attention to him. The Georgia Goo Man is one of the coolest cryptid creatures out there, and it never gets his due. It's always Mothman this and Bigfoot that. It's bullshit. Goo Man blows those amateurs out of the fucking Loch Ness water. This is a legend that's been passed down for years and years and years. It was something that fascinated and terrified me as a kid. My grandfather would sit at the edge of my bed just before it was time to go to sleep and tell me all the pieces of the Goo Man lore. Larry stopped and took a few dramatic steps toward his friend. This is where it starts to get really good. Great. Can't wait, Bob replied sarcastically. You see, my grandfather knew some deep stuff. There was things that he knew about the Goo Man that few others did. Larry paused and got even closer to Bob. Get away from me, Bob protested. Shut it, I'm building tension. Did you know that the Goo Man is not actually a man at all? Yet. Because he's not. He, or or they rather, are actually an intelligent race of fly creatures. They're just so often covered in goo and many mistake them for men. And yeah, that's right, them. There's tons of these suckers. You want to know something else? No. Larry plowed forward. These motherfuckers built and erected the Georgia Guidestones. And guess what, pal? Somebody just blew these things up. The recent sightings, all of the unease I've been feeling, it all makes sense. They're here and they are pissed. Bob said nothing while staring at his friend for a moment longer. 
He wanted to say something. However, he couldn't seem to process anything besides ums and ohs. Eventually, he got it together enough to muster. So you're telling me goo men are real and they're here to take revenge for the guide stones? Larry looked up and thought, Afraid so, my friend, but this means we may actually have a chance to see one of these things. How cool would that be? Bob let out a sigh. Come on, man, I thought maybe we'd just bust out the 64 and play some Mario Kart or something. How many opportunities are we going to get for adventures like this? You know you'd just get smoked if we played that game anyhow, replied Larry. Not true, Bob refuted. Also, that sounds like the types of adventures that we'd go on when we were five. I think I'm beyond the point of chasing mythical creatures around for fun. Well, me too. Goo Man is real, though, so that's something I'm very interested in chasing down and having a good look at, Larry responded. Bob rolled his eyes. It's getting late. This has been quite the welcome home party. Breakfast tomorrow? Larry's already small smile grew wider and wider. Yeah, sounds good, man. The two friends gave each other a brief hug and went their separate ways for the evening. Bob returned to his parents' home, which he was staying at during his break from school. Larry returned back to his nearby apartment. While the two friends wound down in their own way for the night, the local lunatic was out concocting a plan on the other side of town. Off on the west side of town, past all of the local businesses and neatly groomed suburban landscapes, off the beaten path in the woods, Gary Jenkins sat atop his stool. It rested in the front yard of his dilapidated ranch-style home. Behind him, a beautiful scene, the sun setting on his sprawling ten acres of mostly undisturbed nature. In front of Gary sat Paul Towers, sitting on a separate cooler. Paul was Gary's best friend. Like Bob and Larry, they also spent much of their childhood together. Paul was timid and agreeable. Gary was a bit of a loudmouth who really liked the sound of his own voice and spewed a whole lot of bullshit. It was a match made in heaven. Currently, Gary was on one of his famous I knew it rants. You see, Gary often liked to take credit for the fact that he told Paul about things way before it ever made the mainstream news. The pharmaceutical company that was shut down because of the multiple fucked up chemicals discovered. Do you remember hearing about that? Well, you remember six months ago when I told you about all those leaked documents? Well, now it's finally caught up. It's finally caught up to them. The general public knows it, and I knew it. They thought they could keep their little secrets, but I knew it. Gary raised a fist to the sky with a whole lot of intensity. Paul nodded with approval and began to clap lightly. Bravo, another group of scumbags exposed, yet still so many more out there looking in the shadows. If only people would wake up and stop walking around in a stupor. You got that right, friend, said Gary. He stood for a moment to grab another beer out of his cooler and toss his empty can aside. Upon sitting back down, he continued, Now, next order of business. You ever heard of the George Goo Man? Paul's eyes widened and he shot up straight. You bet your ass I've heard of the goo man. Been tracking that thing for years. I even had a series of trail cams running on my property. It's quite some time now. Always hoped I'd catch something. No dice, unfortunately. But I did catch a young couple fooling around once, so that was pretty cool. Gary leaned in dramatically. Well, it's not just one goo man. It's goo men. And guess what? They're here and they are piss. Ever since those jokers blew up those damn guide stones. Wait. Paul wondered. 
the Goo Man and the Guidestones are connected. Is that what you're trying to tell me? That's right, shouted Gary. Paul leaned back and looked up into the starry night sky. His mind was absolutely blown. Eventually, he was able to muster a few words. What else do you know about those things? Gary smiled slightly, knowing he was about to go down a rabbit hole in her hands. Two of his favorite things in life. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> Grab another beer and strap on in. It's going to be another late night here on Gary's ranch. Right on, replied Paul. The Voice Inside My Head by Alexis Ferecki This story happened when I was about 12 years old, and I'm happy that at least one other person in my life saw the same thing that I did that day. Around mid-morning on a summer day in the year of 67, I walked over to my friend Brock's house to see if he wanted to go fishing. He was game, so we took off to the river a couple miles away from his house. We called the river Devil's River because so many kids had fallen in and drowned in it. Now, our parents all agreed we shouldn't go swimming in that river, but we were both great swimmers. Besides, we weren't there to swim anyways. With this in our minds, we decided to hell with our parents' worries. I remember it being warm on my skin as we were walking. Like when you pull a warm towel out of the dryer and wrap it around yourself. Around 11 o'clock, we finally got down to our favorite spot by the river. We cast our poles in and sat on shore waiting for a bite. I couldn't believe how beautiful the day turned out to be, especially since lately it had been raining almost non-stop. We talked about the usual stuff, mainly baseball and girls. Brock pulled out a pack of smokes he snagged from his dad and handed one over to me. We lit up and sat back pretending to be like our fathers, shooting the shit and smoking like we thought we were grown. Boy, looking back, those were the days. Unfortunately, our childhood ended soon after. The fish weren't biting, so we decided to lay down and look up at the clouds. I didn't realize it then, but I remember seeing something black shoot across the sky. Suddenly, the wind picked up and it got real cold. Brock and I looked at each other, wondering what the hell this was about. It was just sunny and warm. I remember Brock saying, maybe we should go back home. I didn't know it was going to be this cold, Steve. Then, a huge rumble of thunder happened, and I swear it was the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. A second later, lightning struck a tree nearby and split it in two. Both of us screamed like hell, but then fell silent when a man appeared from behind the tree that got struck. Well, I guess I'm not sure it was a man, or even a person for that matter. In my old age, I've decided to call this thing the terror, because that's what both of us felt in that moment. The terror walked up to us. Well, no, not walked. More like glided to us. It was strange, because although he had legs and was taking steps, he still didn't seem to be walking. As he got closer to us, I noticed he reeked of rotting flesh. I know this smell, because one time when I was hunting in the fall with my pa, we came across a deer someone shot but must have never found, and it smelled absolutely foul. That's exactly how this thing smelled. As he came closer to us, I realized his eyes had no color, like his pupils were permanently dilated or something. They were black and looked evil. His mouth was huge, and when he grinned down at us, it seemed like his mouth was filled with hundreds of razor-sharp teeth. Before I knew it, his long white fingers grabbed Brock by the throat and pulled him up to his face. His blindingly white skin clashing with his greasy black hair hung down. As I stood there, completely frozen and helpless, I noticed a large lightning bolt burned into the side of the terror's neck. Then. Brock screamed the most animalistic scream I've ever heard. 
This thing was digging his long, filthy fingernails into his neck. I felt my stomach turn, and I knew I was going to vomit. But for some reason, I was truly stuck in place. It was like this thing kept me from being able to move even though my mind shouted to run. Run, run as fast as you can. And then everything went black and a small fuzzy dot started to grow in my vision. I felt the most incredible peace wash over me. Kind of like if you've ever laid down in the ocean and feel the waves go over your body. Yeah, it felt just like that. Yet, as the dot grew, it turned into a scene sort of like a dream. No, like a nightmare. I had a vision of my little brother right at that moment grab a kitchen knife from the knife block from off of our counter at home. He knew better. Ma said that neither of us were to touch those knives. I was watching him break our parents' rules. Stunned, I watched him walk up behind our mother while she was washing dishes in the sink. Before she could even turn around, he stabbed it deep into her back. Now she's falling and I can't stand it. I'm screaming. And then I'm awake on the ground. And the terror has a hold of me. I looked over at Brock and he's laying on the ground. His eyes wide open and unblinking. I swear I thought he was dead. But then he finally blinked and the relief I felt was indescribable. But then my attention went back to this thing that had me by my throat. And a voice in my head that wasn't my own started talking to me. You must kill your brother. Look what he's done to your mother. Your father will be next, and then you. You must kill your brother. He will be waiting for you outside next to the barn to kill you. You must kill your brother. The next thing I remember is Brock shaking me and screaming in my face. The terror left almost as soon as he came. Looking back, the whole thing must have been only minutes, although it felt like hours. I remember my body trembling as Brock held me and cried. I'm not sure we said a word about it to each other. We just simply finished crying, got up, and walked home. Before we parted ways, we hugged each other one last time. I told him, I love you Brock, you're my best friend. He just nodded, wiped the snot from his nose, and walked away. I never got to see Brock alive again. That night, he took a hatchet from his garage and butchered his parents and sister in their sleep. He grabbed a rope and hung himself in his bedroom. Rumor was that written on his bedroom door in his family's blood were the words, they all must die. I believe I have an idea of what the terror made Brock see that day. And come to think of it, we didn't even grab our fishing pole from the river. I wonder if they're still down there somewhere. Sorry, random thoughts, I know. Now, what happens next I have regretted and hated myself every day for these past 55 years. After what the terror made me see, I was raging. My brother killed my family, and he was waiting for me next. The terror warned me that he could be waiting for me down at the barn. As I approached our small white farmhouse, I could see my brother standing there waiting for me, exactly where that thing told me he would be. I started to creep towards him. Along the way, I saw that my pa had his shovel laying out, and I picked it up. Finally, I ran as fast as I could toward my brother, screaming, You killed Ma and Pa, you bastard! and swung with every ounce of strength I had at my little brother's head. The sound of the shovel hitting him was similar to cracking a baseball with a bat. It was awful. He dropped to the ground immediately, and I knew that he was dead. I left him there next to the barn and slowly walked up to the house. Pulling back the screen door, I noticed my pa sitting in his chair in front of the TV. I went towards him to hug his body. When he turned around and smiled, saying, Hey kiddo, Ma is almost done making supper. Go grab your brother and wash up. My stomach turned and my heart started to race. I started to see black dots in my vision. I was going to pass out. 
I took some deep breaths, turned around, and walked right back out that door. I hauled ass down to my brother's body, and once I saw what I had done, I vomited. Thinking quickly, I dragged him into the barn and put his body and shovel inside the wheelbarrow. I ran with him quickly down to the fields behind my house. I took all my clothes off except my underwear. Luckily, the ground was muddy after the recent storms. I took the shovel and dug as quickly as possible. The grave was shallow, but it was all I could think to do at that moment. I took some brush and put it over his grave. After I buried my little brother, I ran home with the wheelbarrow and washed everything off with a hose, including myself. When I got back to the house, my pa asked, Where's your brother, Stevie? I started to shout because reality was hitting me. I can't find him, Pa! I've looked everywhere and I just can't find him! Pa ran into the kitchen and told Ma that Ben was missing. She got on the phone and called the police, but the police said it hadn't been long enough for them to send people out looking. Ma called some friends after that and we searched all night. Eventually, we went home without Ben. Somehow, Ben was never found even after the police were involved. The aftermath was worse than anything. My parents became silent and distant. I didn't exist to them anymore and my guilt ate away at me. I never thought to commit suicide though. I knew that the only reason this thing happened was because of the terror and not because of me. I beat myself up for not being stronger, for not checking on my family first. The terror didn't stop there. I couldn't believe it, but each time lightning would strike, he would come back. I almost always could fight back, not believe his lies, but sometimes he was so convincing. I've killed more people than I can count. I turned to drugs and drink, and during those times, I was actually able to withstand his voice. I was too fucked up to care what he whispered inside my head. I guess that's why I'm telling you my story. I can't take it anymore. I'm now an old man, 67 years old, the same age as the year all this bullshit started. He got in my head again. He's expecting me to shoot everyone inside of a church. He claims that they are all actually worshipping Satan and that they sacrifice animals and small children. I cannot take it anymore. This is my final confession. My name is Stephen Hicks, and I've murdered countless people since the year of 67. I am 67 years old. The date is October 1st, 2022. I have no children, I've never been married, and I have nothing to live for. This will save lives. Goodbye. Breaking news! Confessed serial killer Stephen Hicks died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Police reports confirm at least 67 victims over a 55-year period. He left a detailed list of each of the victims and their causes of death. More will be revealed after the investigation. WKAH Channel 12 News. Part 2. The Nook. Next morning, the bright sun rose up over the peaceful suburban landscape. Larry was still in a deep slumber in his warm bed. Bob, on the other hand, was already wide awake and attacking the day. He was deep into a cardio session on his treadmill. The speed, a consistent 5.6 with just a slight incline. That was Bob's perfect setting and it rarely changed. When Bob's 30-minute run ran completed, he called his friend Larry. Buzz, buzz, the vibrations of the ringing phone were amplified by the nightstand it rested on. This was enough to end Bob's sleep. He opened his eyes slowly and tapped his screen answering, put his friend on speakerphone. What's up? Were you sleeping, Larry? Bob interrogated him. Nah, man, I've been all to all sorts of stuff already today, said Larry. 
Whatever, where do you want to go for breakfast? I'm thinking we hit the Norris Nook. Brand new breakfast place that opened. Best pies in the entire county. Just the county? Bob questioned. Well, that's pretty good still. Besides, they just opened, man. Cut them some slack. Today the county, tomorrow the world. And with that, the two friends hung up their phones and soon found themselves at the Norris Nook. The Nook was a fairly new business, but the building that it resided in was not. It had gone through many previous breakfast places, though nothing seemed to stick. The interior has been the same for over 20 years, and even some of the same food carried over from owner to owner. But the Norris family was attempting to change all that. Inside the restaurant was a line of booths against the exterior entry wall, and then a counter in the middle with a register, a giant blackboard with the specials for the day, and of course, a three-tiered case containing the county-famous pies. Bob and Larry sat in one of the booths closest to the entry. Bob's plate featured some egg whites, fruit, and a piece of whole wheat toast. Larry's plate was, well, a bit of a mess. There was meat, hash browns, eggs, and what appeared to be some green onions gracing the top. At least that's what Larry thought. Either way, he didn't really care. The two of them were deep in conversation, continuing where they left off the night before. We gotta approach this carefully. Larry passionately gestured with his fork. These fuckers are really aware of their surroundings. Bob took a small bite of his food and briefly looked up to the sky and thought. His face suddenly changed. How in the hell would you or anybody else for that matter even know something like that? With a mouthful of food, Larry shook his head. Research, dude. Research. A few booths down, another couple of friends were engaged in a similar conversation. So when we get to camp and set up, what's the rest of the evening looking like? Paul questioned. Though it seemed to be a strange coincidence that these two groups of friends were on a similar mission, would be just mere feet away from one another starting the day. The Norris Nook was really the only breakfast place in town. Paul was holding a single uncut bagel with just a few bites taken out of one side. That's right, Paul didn't cut or top his bagel. He just chomped right into the side. Paul was weird. He was also a planner, though he was excited for the journey he'd be going on with his friend. He really needed to know the logistics. Hmm, Gary quipped. I thought we'd just wing it. Uh, Paul paused. Sounds like a plan. Back in the first booth, Bob and Larry were starting to wrap things up. All right, Larry exclaimed. First things first, we need to find out more about these guidestones. Huh? I thought they were blown up, pondered Bob. Larry stood up, preparing to take the bill up to the cashier. Yes, but the debris and the remainder of the rocks were quote-unquote taken by local authorities. Bob now stood up as well and stared at his friend for just a moment. What do you mean, quote-unquote? Who else could have taken that shit? The friends made their way up to the front counter as Bob started to reach for his wallet. Larry quickly noticed and spoke up before answering the question. Allow me, really. Let me get this one. Bob stopped fumbling with his back pocket. Hey, thanks, Larry. Suddenly, Darlene, the cashier, approached the two of them. Larry handed the check over with his credit card and continued, And to answer your question, it was still authority is interested, not the, just the local type. I'm talking feds, man! So, how the hell are we going to acquire stone fragments from the federal government? Bob inquired. Larry received the bill and his credit card back from Darlene as he continued, I got a guy on the inside, Bob. In fact, he should be meeting us any minute now. Here? Well, in the lot, but yeah, here, don't worry, he's cool. 
Meanwhile, another meal was just about wrapping up as well. Gary was finishing another epic rant while Paul nodded and fished for his wallet. I'm telling you, Paul, these stones belong to the people and to the goo men, of course. Lucky for us, I've got a way to get them. Paul looked around nervously as Gary's words hit him. He took a long, deep breath before going any further. I thought we were just going camping. We are. We're camping right near the facility where I believe the stones to be stashed away. Well, what's left of them anyway. Gary and Paul both stood up and made their way over to the counter to pay. Gary continued, once we get the stones or the stone debris, we can attract a goo man. Then bam, we've got it made. Gary? A somewhat familiar voice came from the counter area and grabbed Gary's attention. Larry, it's good to see you, my boy. I'm sure you remember Paul. Paul extended a greasy bagel hand forward for a shake. Larry mirrored Paul and completed the gesture. Good to see you, Paul. Guys, my good friend Bob. Bob gave a small wave towards them. Hello. Gary was actually one of my former college professors. The stuff he could tell you would melt your freaking mind. Larry mentioned. Wow, Bob replied. Gary and Larry back again. Can't wait. What's our first move? Gary took an excited step forward. We head straight to camp. Come on, boys. Paul, meet us in the lot. With that, Gary excitedly left the restaurant. Larry began to follow behind closely, but was held up by a tug on his shirt. Dude, who even is this guy? We're just going to go on some whacked-out camping weekend with two conspiracy nuts? Bob muttered, hushed. Well, three, actually, Larry replied. Besides, did you really have anything else in mind? These guys are all right. Gary's a former teacher of mine during my short stint, and Paul, well, he's a friend of Gary's, and I'm sure he's fine, too. Bob sighed and threw his hands up as the two friends left the nook. A couple of minutes later, Paul joined them in the lot. It was time to hit the road. The Yormoot by Jamie Jones Darylsby County Terrorized by Murky Menace February 23rd, 1939 M. George Eldon, staff writer Not less than three Darylsby County residents came forward this week reporting suspicious activity in the area of Port Lyon with warnings to the townspeople to be wary near the water's edge. Late Tuesday night, Sheriff Calloway received reports from Mrs. Mary August and Judge J. Barclay that stock lost from their farms had been discovered near the south bank of Port Lyon in a state of decomposition. Widow August was inconsolable. Deputy Mills, originally of Brockaway, provided escort home for Widow August, as he was familiar with the area. Stopping at Southern Bank Service Way on his return, Deputy Mills wrote in his report a foul odor in his area but no sign of wrongdoing could be discerned. January 19, 1940. M. George Alden, staff writer. Hanover Tracy, a young man from Middle Ridge, has been adjudged insane by Honorable Eugene Rollo and admitted to North Mark Hospital for treatment. Tracy was found in an open outbuilding near the shore of Port Lyon around midnight and presumed frozen to death. Coroner Korch was sent home when it was discovered Tracy was alive but rambling and in a state. Tracy repeated gestures of antlers with his hands against the sides of his head. June 29th, 1940. M. George Alden, staff writer. A great lightning storm trapped Elsie Garland on Lions Island while out with her dog and an unknown suitor. Garland claims a wave of darkness and detritus overcame them with a yawn, and her suitor was whisked below the reach of the mangrove roots. 
The devastated Elsie fought against the storm, clinging to her prized spaniel. Yet, in the flash and flicker of the next bolt, the dripping moss swallowed too her beloved pup. Miss Garland was taken to Northmark Hospital for examination. After muttering, "Your moot," and nothing more to her rescuers. September 4th, 1941. E.P. Grant, Editor. Last August, Mrs. G. Alden of Leomond Township died under mysterious circumstances. Shortly afterward, her widower, M. George Alden, also died. The late Mr. Alden wrote for this publication for nine years prior. The peculiar circumstances surrounding the death caused a lot of talk, and Mr. Alden's sensational reports at Port Lyon were mentioned unfavorably as the cause of great fear and distress in town. German fishermen near the bank recently reported a queer disease overcoming their camp. While investigating, Alden stated a wild storm approached, and the group was overcome. Alden later wrote of the black mass Yormut rising up in the light of the sky's fury and its jaws open wide until one-third the men were no more. Services will be held for the widower Alden next Sunday at Prairie Chapel. Part 3. Camping It was a three-hour drive south into the deep woods. The group brought two vehicles, creating a small convoy down the various country roads. Gary and Paul led the group, while Larry and Bob followed them closely behind. Bob was still anxious about this whole set of plans, but figured if nothing else, it'd be a good weekend of fun memories with a friend. Gary and Paul were primed and ready for the big potential encounter. They remained mostly silent throughout the drive. Instead, they listened intently to a conspiracy podcast. Every once in a while, an occasional, right on, or I knew it, would be thrown out, but that was about all. When they finally arrived at the site, it was just a little past noon. The high, bright sun shone down on the tree line, making the vast forest even more beautiful. As Bob looked around, he was both surprised and relieved that it appeared to be a fairly normal-looking area. In front of them, as they left the vehicle, was a large log cabin. It served as the registration welcome center of the campsite. Gary and Paul were already out of their car and making their way into the building when they noticed Larry and Bob and paused for a minute. Glad you made it in one piece, Gary exclaimed. Have others that had ventured with you in the past not made it? Bob wondered. Gary thought for a moment. Just once, he shouted. With that, he made his way through the door and into the building. Quickly, the others followed and also entered. It was quite a sight, none of which anyone in the group could have ever imagined in their wildest dreams. The finished yet rustic looking floors, the walls, the entire front registration area were a bloodbath. The group instantly took notice and stood together, still, mere feet from the front door. Nobody said a word for several long minutes. It felt like hours. Eyes continued darting around the room trying to make any sense of the scene. Finally, it was Gary that spoke up. I'll bet it's for the Halloween event they're having. He took a few more seconds to scan the bloody front lobby. Yeah, that's gotta be it. I've most definitely seen them do something like this before. Well, doesn't look like anyone's here right now. Let's just get to our site and get set up. We can check in in the morning. Gary turned around and retreated back through the main entry towards their vehicles. The others remained still, unsure if they should believe Gary's assumption. 
Larry turned toward his friend, Bob, as Paul remained fixated on a particular area of the lounge, still in great shock. Bob, Larry began. That's gotta be it. That makes so much more sense than the alternative. Let's at least get settled in, get some food, get some hydration, then we can come up with a solid game plan. <sighs> okay, fine. The two of them made their way back towards the door, Larry glancing back once more at the horror scene and noticed Paul still in shock. Come on, man, Larry shouted. Paul instantly snapped back to reality and swiftly turned to follow them. It wasn't far to the site, so there wouldn't be much time to dwell on what they just witnessed. That was very, very fortunate. Though there had to have been a reasonable explanation, there was still unease that lingered in the group. Before getting into their cars to head to the camp, Paul quickly grabbed everyone's attention with a clearing of his throat. With everyone stopped and all eyes now on him, Paul got to his announcement. <clears throat> So I hope this isn't bad timing for this, but I wanted to show you guys something. Paul reached into his pocket and proceeded to pull out a small circular patch, all black background, with a large lightning bolt taking up much of the foreground. In small white letters across the top, it said, Gary's Paranormal Adventure Club. Paul held the patch up proudly in the air, panning it slowly to make sure everyone could see. No, I don't think we really have time for this, as a matter of fact chimed in Bob. Larry gave Bob a look of, come on, give him a chance. Gary piped up next, Bob's right, besides this isn't some adventure Boy Scout club where we go on expeditions and fight with sticks in our little tree fort. Paul lowered the patch and slid it back into his pocket. His gaze shifted toward his feet on the ground. Larry turned slightly toward the dejected Paul and attempted to break the awkward silence. Sheesh, tough crowd. I, for one, thought it was pretty dope. I'd wear that thing. A few seconds of silence lingered before Gary piped in. Well, let's get to it. Paul, almost like a lapdog responding to an order, snapped out of his dejection and leapt right into Gary's car. There were goo men to be found, and Paul was no longer thinking about his patch proposal. Salisbury by Chris Jones Thunder booms, wrenching me from my sleep. Wondering if I heard the sound of something falling over, I instinctively looked over at the large dresser across from my bed. I squinted the clock on the wall across from the foot of my bed. It says it is 3.33. The room is lit up by nearby lightning, and some movement catches my eye. Is the door to the hallway slowly opening? The room goes back to being dark, and I lean forward looking towards the door in the darkness. I fail to see any light peering in from the hallway outside, which puts my mind at ease. Thunder cracks again, followed by another burst of lightning. I see the door open a few inches, and an arm reaches into my bedroom. I panic, and I am doused in dread. I don't want to see. I wish it was dark again. The arm ends in a seven-fingered hand. The hand is gripping some sort of cloth. I fail to identify the color of the cloth because it keeps changing from color to color. The many fingers squeeze the cloth, and a gentle puff of smoke emerges and wisps toward me. The room goes dark again. When the wisp is inches from my face, a tiny burst of light occurs, as if somebody lit a sparkler and I lose control of my body. This makes my body heavy and forces me to lie down. The room is lit up again and I watch the door get pushed fully open by a bony, malformed hand. A tall figure ducks underneath the door frame and steps into my room. I really want to go back to sleep now. 
standing only a few feet from me is something that I wish I didn't see. It resembles a human being wearing the clothes of a 1800s chimney sweep. My mind keeps short-circuiting looking at its arms, the arm holding the cloth and the bony malformed arm and hand that has pushed the door open are attached to the being's right side. I really don't like the left arm. It's long and is resting its palm on the floor. I then notice the smell. The scent of beef gravy and old sweat invades my nose. Thunder and lightning blast and blaze. My mind tries to rationalize the situation, but the light allows me to clearly see that this thing's head is a featureless, haphazard pile of meat. Sliding and tumbling to the floor are brown gravy-colored cuts of meat. They cause a sickening slapping sound when they hit my bedroom floor. My mind slips further as I see the woven circle of gravy anti-light above the being's head. It is dropping more gravy-colored patties on top of its head to replace the ones that have fallen to the floor. A being of much shorter stature enters my room. The short creature wears a crisp suit and its head looks like an enlarged human skull with thick wrinkles across its surface. An unfathomable glare is being cast upon me. Even if I could turn my head, the short creature's empty, deep black eye sockets would command me to stare into them. The short creature speaks to me directly inside my head. It says with a commanding tone that I was warned and that I had a choice. The short creature walks forward towards the foot of my bed and leaves my field of vision. Free from the terrifying staring contest, I look over at the tall one. It just stands there. Its head continues to unmake itself and then be reformed. The short creature then climbs up on the bed and stands upon my ribcage. It reaches into its pants pocket and pulls out a human tooth. The creature lifts my upper lip and somehow forcibly inserts the tooth into my upper jaw. A painful, sharp sound rings in my ears and I feel like I have been broken in half. I've never felt this much sadness before in my life. The short creature steps to the edge of my bed and reaches into its pocket and casually tosses a glowing stone onto the bed. It turns its grotesque head and speaks aloud at me. Maybe you'll survive. With those words spoken, the tall being turns to smoke and billows out of my room. Now able to move again, I sit up and watch as the short creature climbs down from my bed and steps out into the hall. The thunder booms and the door slams shut. I passed out from exhaustion. Part 4. Conclusion By 4.30pm, everyone was settled in and filled up with food and water. They shared a site with two separate tents for each duo of friends. By this point, they all got to further rationalize and sit with what they had seen. Gary and Paul were in the process of separating what they needed to stay back at camp versus what they needed to bring along for the journey. Meanwhile, Bob and Larry sat together at a picnic table on the site. Bob was in the middle of expressing concern. So are we sure about this? Maybe we should just go home. Larry tried to put his friend at ease. Come on, you're the rational one. You know damn well some goo man didn't just bust in there and slay the staff. I do know that, replied Bob. However, what I'm unsure of is whether or not it was some other threat that, like, a real animal, perhaps? Larry looked up in thought and then continued. Would it make you feel better if we went looking for a staff member back at the lodge? Without hesitation, Bob responded, well, yes, it would. All right, then, let's go back. 
Larry and Bob told the others their plan and started to walk towards the check-in lodge. As they disappeared down the trail, Gary and Bob were just wrapping up their organizing. Gary enthusiastically slammed the back door of his truck and put his hand on Paul's unclenched shoulder, snapping him to attention. Ready, pal? With those guys gone, we can run ahead and see the place. Look for potential entry points, escape routes, traps, cameras, you know, all that jazz. Paul responded reluctantly. Sure, 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 sure. Sounds like a plan. The once bright, beautiful sun was now starting to set into the mess of trees. Gary and Paul hopped into the old farm truck and started down the main dirt path, north, towards the facility. It wasn't a long drive, just a few miles from the campsites, accessed via a private driveway, nearly hidden at first glance due to the sheer amount of nature that had overtaken the area. Larry had been here before. He had no intention of telling the others, but he had done an early morning recon mission one day prior to their trip. Deep down, he knew it. He just had to make sure that he really knew it. Once they could start to see the facility, Gary slowed and pulled the car to the right. With a deep breath, Gary shifted the car into park. Okay, this is where we get out. After exiting the truck, Gary started to gesture towards a small dirt path between the fence line and the thick, overgrown forest. Following Gary's lead, Paul changed direction toward the path, and the two explorers were one step closer and ready to finally uncover the secrets of the Goo Man. The facility was massive. It had been three minutes of walking, and they were just getting past the front lot. At the edge of the lot was a small courtyard with many benches and a very nice fountain. One of the two of them arrived at the courtyard. Gary knew immediately something was wrong. On his previous trip for recon, there was certainly not a giant hole cut into the fence. Shit, Gary muttered. Shit, Paul asked. Yeah, this isn't good. Someone breached this place already. Come on. Gary frantically made his way through the hole, with Paul following closely behind. They dashed through the courtyard, trying to remain just as vigilant and as quiet as possible. Just past the courtyard was a large keypad entry door. Normally, this would have been enough to put a stop to the plan. However, this was a unique day. The main entry was wide open. Back at the check-in lodge, Larry and Bob searched for any signs of life. They started with the lot, then the building exterior. Nothing. Both of them really didn't want to proceed with the next step, but knew it was really the only option. The two of them approached the front door, remaining silent as they entered the building. The scene hadn't changed at all from just a few hours earlier. It was eerily quiet, but they remained hopeful. Bob shouted a few, Hello? Hello? In various directions in the lodge. It wasn't a huge place, so certainly if anyone was around, they would have heard him. After a few minutes, still nothing. It seemed they were alone, and the initial sinking feeling that they experienced upon entering and making the discovery was back. This is just weird, man, proclaimed Bob. Please, let's just go back home. We'll go tell the others. We'll pack up and we can be on our way out of here in no time. Maybe there's even still time to salvage what's left of the weekend. Larry thought for a moment, disappointed, but definitely understood his friend's concern. All right, Bob, you win this time, but I still know that the goo men are out there and I won't stop trying to prove it. With that, they turned and exited the lodge to start the walk back to camp. At this point, it was getting rather dark and rather cold outside. The nocturnal sounds of nature added even more to the already spooky vibes. At the facility, Gary and Paul were now exploring the front lobby. All the lights were on, but there was no employees in sight. From both sides of the room, two long halls branched out. To the right appeared to be a set of small labs for experiments. To the left was an area with two very fancy-looking elevators. 
The center of the lobby featured a large half-circle desk. Normally, any guest would have had to check in here before moving forward through the building, but this evening it was looking like Gary and Paul had a free pass. They stood for a moment in thought at the front desk. Gary looked around the room, tapping his thigh with his pointer finger. He turned to Paul, gesturing towards the labs. Let's go that way. Gary started towards the labs while Paul continued to stand nervously in front of the desk. After a few steps, Paul let out a small sigh and started to move. It was weird how quiet it was, yet Paul still had faith in his pal. Gary stopped outside the first lab door on the right, waiting for Paul to catch up to him. In a hushed tone, Gary spoke while gesturing to Paul. Over here. Paul made his way into the hallway, just a few feet from Gary now. Suddenly, the once enthusiastic expression on Gary's face now changed to concern. From out of nowhere, a massive, ugly creature appeared. It had a huge wingspan, an awful stench, and gross, stubby arms that were reaching directly towards Paul. Gary knew right away what the creature was and also knew it was much too late for him to do anything about it. Instead, he desperately made his way into the luckily unlocked lab close to him. Paul, on the other hand, was lifted off the ground. He fought like hell wiggling his body and attempting to break free by any means necessary. But it was no match for the goo man. With very little effort, the creature pulled Paul's face towards its own and stared a nasty stare before going in for the kill. A few ounces of vomit flowed from its snout, and then, in one quick motion, it devoured what it could of Paul's face. After the deed was done, it tossed Paul's lifeless body off to the side. Gary looked around the lab for any possible spot that would work for hiding. In the corner of the room, he spotted a large cabinet. Bingo! Gary now had all the proof that he could ever want, but at what cost? He was not a religious man by any means. Tonight, though, he made an exception. He silently prayed while hiding in the cabinet, trying hard not to make a sound. Around the same time, Larry and Bob were just arriving back at the campsite. Empty! Where'd they go? said Bob. Larry stared out down the main road after the campgrounds. He continued to look that direction while answering, the facility. Prior to the expedition, Larry and Gary often chatted on Zoom about stories and news in the conspiracy world. They would trade knowledge about the various reports they'd find about research going on in regards to reports of disturbances in the confiscated stones. They knew it all had to tie in somehow to the Goo Man. After falling down quite a deep rabbit hole, they concluded this abandoned facility by the campgrounds had to be where some devious research was taking place. Bob didn't know any of this, so Bob was understandably upset as the two of them entered through the front door of the facility, stumbling upon the same fence hole. However, Bob did have time to stay mad for long. The mangled, unrecognizable Paul was laying in the corner of the room. They both took notice and froze in place. What the fuck, Larry? Bob screamed. Boys? A familiar voice was heard from the hall to the right. Bob and Larry looked over and saw Gary poking his head out from the nearest lab door. Realizing the coast was now clear, he made his way over to them. Gary threw his hands in the air and yelled, Guys, everything's gone to shit! Bob took a couple steps backwards towards the exit. Let's get the fuck out of here then! We can't, Larry continued. We need to find the remains of the Guidestones and destroy them. We don't need to do shit. If you want to risk your life playing with some stones, that's up to you, Bob replied. Gary continued scanning the lobby, half listening, but still in shock. Gary took a small step towards the both of them and made a heartfelt plea. 
Please, if we don't destroy the stones, they'll just keep killing. I need your help. Once we obtain the stone debris, I'll take it out of here. You guys can just distract any possible creatures trying to stop me. I'm not asking for much. Bob didn't respond. <sighs> Larry, finally coming out of his shock, spoke. I don't know, man. That's pretty heavy. Gary put his hand on Larry's shoulder and stared directly into his eyes. It's the only way. And what if you're wrong? Questioned Larry. Trust me. Bob walked a bit further into the lobby. Fine, where's these stones? They gotta be in one of these labs, answered Garrett. The group moved down the long hall of labs, checking each one. Most were completely empty and easy to check off the list of potentials. By the time they reached the fourth set of labs, something caught Gary's eye. Boom, there they are. Right out in the open, unguarded, were the remains of the stones, ground to a very fine dust. The dust sat in a large, unmarked bag on the top of a lab table. Perfect for the taking. With wide eyes, Gary snatched the bag and started heading back towards the hall. Don't worry, boys, I'll find a way to destroy this stuff once and for all. I just need you to distract anything we see on my way out. Once the rocks are finally put to rest, this all ends. Hey, wait, shouted Larry. Are you sure? Gary stopped. Bob also chimed in. Yeah, how do you know this isn't all just bullshit? Gary grinned. You'll just have to trust me. With that, Gary took off down the hall, back to the main entry in the lobby. After allowing Gary a bit of space, Bob turned to Larry. Let's just follow behind and get the fuck out of here, too. Larry nodded, and the two of them left the room. The hall was not very long, but in this moment, it felt endless. One empty office passed, then two, then suddenly, boom, a behemoth of Goo Man was now blocking the end of the hall. Gary was safely out of the building, and it was looking like Larry and Bob were going to need a new plan. Instantly, the two did a 180 back towards the nearest open offices and locked the door behind them. The next available space was a bit different than the last room. There was a lab on one half and what looked to be a prison cell of some sort on the other half. In here, whispered Larry as he moved into the cell. But before Bob could move a step, a loud alarm started to sound. In one fast motion, the cell door slammed closed, locking Larry inside. Bob stood shocked and horrified on the other side. Larry howled, shit, shit, now what? Bob leaned in and spoke softly in an attempt to put his friend at ease and not attract additional intention. Don't worry, I'll find a way. They could now hear the faint sounds of buzzing and scratching coming from the outside of the room. It was just a matter of time. Bob began desperately searching through the lab to see if he could find something that resembled a first step in getting his friend out. He first spotted a computer and tried to see if there was some sort of digital controls, but it was locked with a passcode. Of course. Next, he searched in drawers, scanning for anything that could potentially help. Bob looked through loose papers and notebooks. He was doing his best, but the noises from outside the door that continued to increase in volume were certainly a hard thing to ignore. Outside the building, Gary looked to be in the clear. He grasped the bag of stone dust tightly, and he made his way to a nearby sewer entrance. Bob, do you remember when we used to stay up all night watching 90s game show reruns? Asked Larry in an effort to provide a distraction to their current situation. Bob continued searching through drawers as he replied, Of course, man, that was the best. We sure had some good times. 
Back in the sewers, Gary was making his way deeper through the narrow space. His plan was to dump the debris in as far back as possible and rid the creatures of this world for good. A solid plan in theory. In reality, things weren't going well. Deep inside the sewers was a nest. Gary had not just woken up a mother and tons of tiny flymen, and he had just ensured his demise, and he knew it. Even though it hadn't seemed to work back hiding in the cabinet, and even though Gary was still not a religious man, he gripped his prized possession and prayed. I'm sorry it came to this, I just wanted to have some fun, you know? Larry sat in the corner of the small cell, staring at the main office door, knowing that doom was coming. Bob was only half paying attention. He was still doing his best to look all over for the paperwork, notes, any possible help. He mustered a response. Don't apologize. Not yet, at least. We're getting out of here. Now let's go back to 90s game shows. Larry's tension eased just a bit. Good call. So what the hell was the deal with the Shrine of the Silver Monkey? Those dopes just could never figure it out. Bob shifted another pile of papers over to an open tabletop. A handwritten note attached to the side of the computer monitor caught his eye. While reaching for it, he tried to respond to Larry's ridiculousness. Hmm, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it was just too difficult to assemble. Larry shifted. Hey, yeah, probably. The door was just about ready to give way. The buzzing was becoming harder and harder and louder and harder to ignore. In an instant, Bob's face dropped. He had finally found some information about the cell door, and it didn't look good. He reread what he had just discovered. No, this couldn't be. Larry looked at Bob with some concern. Everything okay, Bob? Bob knew everything was not okay. He had information to share with his friend that would suck any bit of hope that remained completely out of the room. The cell inside of that room was a prototype. It was a special containment device powered by particles of magical guide stones. The same stones that were now in a bag on the lifeless corpse of Gary. The door broke open fully now and the goo man entered. Bob turned to his friend Larry, who had not yet noticed the intruder. With a slight smile, Bob answered, Yeah, man, of course. End. And that is the end of the Cryptid Anthology. I just want to thank everybody who contributed, Jamie, Chris, and Alexis. Your stories were awesome, and I'm so happy that we got to collaborate and do this thing. Um, I know it was probably a lot of work, and uh, the deadlines came very quickly, but we now have something special that we can look back on and go back and re-listen to for future spooky seasons and say... We did that. So thank you, guys. This has been an awesome project to come together. So for those of you listening at home, thanks for listening. And the Halloween fun continues tomorrow with a brand new Horror Through the Decades with Nicholas Pepin. And also all month long, we have more action for you. So stay tuned. Mediapod smash off. Have you recently lost a loved one and want to hold on to their memory forever? Would you like all of the world to be able to view what their life had been about? Seasons of Life Memorials is what you are looking for. We create individual and unique documentary shorts that will allow anyone visiting the gravesite to view the documentary and your memories of the loved one. Contact us today to set up an appointment at seasonsoflifememorials.com. <laughs>